Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Do mRNA vaccines cause heart problems? How bad are they? How widespread? Do the risks outweigh the benefits for particular age groups? These should be scientific questions. But as we know, anything that gets even close to the topic of vaccines has become more of an information war. This past week, a report from the Surgeon General's office in Florida claimed that young men who have had the mRNA vaccines are 84% more likely to die from cardiac issues in the 28 days post-vaccination than others. And that Florida, because of that report, is no longer recommending males aged 18 to 39 to take those jabs. Predictably, all hell broke loose, and the usual experts and counter-experts lined up to either defend or attack the claim. Well, friends, we are going in. We have found two experts that we think bring a credible, independent perspective, and that's kind of rare in this kind of discussion. The first is called Professor Andish Vid. He is a lead epidemiologist at the Danish Statens Serum Institute, which is the same health agency that has recently discontinued all COVID vaccines for under 50s. The second is called Dr. Tracy Ho. She is a consultant epidemiologist for none other than the Florida Department of Health. Yes, the very same people that put out the study everybody is talking about. And yet what she has to say may surprise you. First up, Professor Andish Levine joins us from Copenhagen. Welcome, Professor. Hi. This study, first of all, that has come out in the last few days, um, it's been talked about by the Florida Department of Health. The Surgeon General of Florida is a controversial character, and he has been he published this study, and it's been much discussed, and it claims that there is an 84% increase in cardiac injury and deaths for a young men between 18 and 39 in the period shortly after they've received a mRNA vaccination. Have you had a chance to look at that study? Yeah, I have looked at the study, yeah. yeah. And what do you make of it? Well, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm terribly impressed. I mean, first of all, um, it's, it's a relatively new thing for us epidemiologists, researchers to encounter studies this way that we're even discussing stuff like this in, 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 in media outside of our medical journals. Um, I would say that if I, if I had to phrase it nicely, this is uh, probably a pretty incomplete presentation. If uh, you want us to consider it as a, a, a piece of research that we can evaluate, right? I mean, first of all, there, there are no authors. This is a big, pretty big red flag. I mean, typically you would look at the authors, you would look at the journal it's published in as sort of a sign of quality. I mean, I would like to see that these are some authors, um, if I know them, 
uh, or at least if I know of their work, I know these are, are accomplished people in, in the field uh, of epidemiology, vaccine safety, cardiology, for example. Um, that, of course, lends credence to the work, but this is especially a first for me that there are no sort of uh, authors on this um, these. And how about the actual methods as well, despite the absence of authors and a kind of normal peer review process? Were you convinced by their methodology? I not, not particularly. I mean, there are a lot of things you can really dig into here and, and criticize, but they use a method that is sort of, um, that requires a lot of assumptions to be met, right? And so they, they study uh, death as an outcome. And this method is, 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 it has a lot of benefits, but it also has some uh, assumptions that needs to be met. And at least what I've learned is that one of these key assumptions is that you, you, you have to be able to experience the exposure after you're having the outcome. And that, that, that the, having the, the, the outcome shouldn't inf influence your, your future risk of, of the exposure. And of course, clearly death violates that. I mean, you, you cannot get vaccinated after you've died. Just to explain to the viewers, so what they, what they as I understand it, what they did is they measured um, of the cohort who had been mRNA vaccinated, they measured deaths from non-COVID incidents in the 28 days immediately subsequent, and then also in a longer period after those 28 days. Um, not, no, not, not exactly. What they've essentially done, or it, that's my interpretation from what I sort of can glean from, from this, uh, this couple of pages, is that they've gone to their course of death register, and they picked uh, yeah, deaths, and then they've uh, obtained information on vaccination status in these deaths, and then they've basically compared the timing of death in relation to vaccination. And they, they're using a method that, that was really not developed for studying uh, outcomes such as death that influences your future risk. Uh, so that's, that's a red flag for me. And especially the way they're presenting it, they're, they're, they're just saying, well, we, we continue to follow people even though they're dead. And I would have liked to see them recognize that this is a well-known assumption of this method. And I would have liked them to see them discuss it and then try to conduct different sensitivity analysis to see, is it, is it, is it an important violation of this assumption? So in other words, they're still included in the kind of denominator, yeah. even after they're dead in some way. Yeah. Whilst, and that's, yeah, you yeah. think, is a sort of technical flaw. It, it, I suspect it is. And, and at least they should address the fact that they, they should then, it's, it's on the burden of proof is on their shoulders to sort of uh, clarify for the reader that this, this may be sort of a violation uh, in theory, but in practice, it has no implication, right? And, and especially when they are talking about death among the young uh, people, right? Uh, death is much rarer here. And so you can, you, can, you can go in and look at the results and see, for example, if you don't do what they've done, if you don't follow dead people in the denominator, um, what does this mean? And then you would have like a non-statistically significant result. You, you wouldn't have anything. So this is a study, I guess, understandably, because it's now so politicized, particularly in America, um, has been widely criticized. I guess I would ask, what is your approach to the underlying finding? Exactly whether the methods were, were perfect or not, do you think that there is some substance in that worry that there is increased cardiac issues among younger men in particular, and that is something that needs to be taken seriously? Well, I can't really use the results from this study to substantiate anything. And again, I could could talk all afternoon about all the different uh, criticisms that I have. For example, also the fact that when you're using cause of death, these are delayed. Um, the study period that I suspect they've used, this delay would uh, influence the younger uh, people 
uh, to a larger extent because they would be more likely to be vaccinated at the end of the study and they would have incomplete uh, causes of death registration. That's an obvious uh, source of potential bias here. But in general, I mean, we've shown ourselves in our, in our big Nordic study that I'm, I'm guessing we're going to discuss. We've shown ourselves that, yes, and also other research groups have shown that there, there is an association between the mRNA vaccines and myocarditis, in particular after the second dose. Um, and this is strongest in the younger males. But what we've also observed and what we report in our, our, our paper in JAMA Cardiology is that uh, at least if you look for 28 days after you've received your diagnosis of myocarditis, we've looked at mortality in 28 days, similar to, to this study. In 23 million uh, people in the Nordic countries, there were no deaths within young males getting a myocarditis diagnosis in the 28-day period after receiving the myocarditis diagnosis, right? And that's, of course, reassuring. And that also sort of lends support for this, uh, this uh, claim that myocarditis after vaccination, yes, it is a thing. It is milder, much milder than uh, classical myocarditis or myocarditis that you would receive after a, a SARS-CoV-2 infection. So let's talk about your study then, because obviously you think it's done more robustly because you designed it. Um, what, what did you study? You, you took a much larger sample, so you're talking pretty much everyone in, within the Nordic countries on public health records, or how did you conduct your study? Yeah, so in the Nordic countries we have, uh, we have a nationwide coverage of, of, uh, of our citizens in registers. We have all kinds of information, demographic information, vaccinations, um, positive tests for SARS-CoV-2, uh, contact to hospitals, right? And so we are sort of experts in conducting these large uh, cohort studies, which essentially comprise the whole population. We can follow them over time and keep track of everything. We can keep track of the vaccination status and we can keep track of uh, if and when they are admitted to hospital uh, for myocarditis, for example. And, and then it's basically just about counting. A lot of epidemiology is just about counting, but counting correctly, right? What are the kind of numbers involved? Uh, you, you talk about an increased risk of myocarditis. How, how high were those incidents? I, I think if I remember it correctly, Talking about the Pfizer vaccine, BioNTech, for example, the, the highest uh, absolute risks were among the younger males uh, after the second dose. That's uh, in a way natural since the uh, since myocarditis in general is just uh, that the risk of myocarditis is just higher in younger males compared to older males or compared to females. And so the, the, uh, the, the absolute numbers become uh, larger there. Uh, when you add some kind of relative risk on top of that. And I think it was something like for the second dose of BioNTech, one, one per, per, per 20,000 vaccinated. So these are, these are sort of the absolute risks that we're talking about. But then again, we're talking about a mild outcome. And, and when I'm saying mild, I'm not saying that it's, it's negligible to, to go into the hospital with myocarditis. I'm just saying mild in the, in the sense that we did not observe death, we did not observe heart failure associated with these cases in the younger males. And what was the increase in, in, in relative risk of having those kind of issues for younger males? I, I think the, the relative risk is, is, is irrelevant in these kinds of studies. It is really the absolute risk that you want to to, to to get down to, right? You want to know, for, for me, when I go down and get vaccinated, what is the probability that I will develop uh, myocarditis? Uh, I can't really use a, a relative risk increase. So if somebody tells me you're at five times higher risk, and I say, but I need to know then five times, what is five times higher of what, right? And so when, when we know there is an association, 
it makes most sense to talk about these absolute risks. So your sense is, if you know, correct me if I'm not summing up correctly here, but your sense is that it's true that myocarditis is a side effect of these vaccinations. It's true that it's particularly affects younger males, but the incidence is still small. And we, even when it does happen, it's unpleasant. It's not good for you. You go to hospital, you'd definitely rather it didn't happen, but you're not observing people dying of it in any observable number. That, that, that's basically correct, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I guess that's reassuring. And, and of course, it's something that we, we, we are following up on in our Nordic Register data, and we will, uh, I hope, be releasing further research on, on this topic by the end of the year or in the coming month, where we, we, we are following these individuals who been diagnosed with myocarditis after vaccination for much longer periods. And was that part of, you know, I, I, I asked you this earlier, but I just want to understand, was it part of the Danish health agency's decision to restrict vaccination for under 50s that there are these observable side effects, so it becomes a kind of risk reward. And because the risk of COVID, at least at this point, is so small for younger people, they decided that it wasn't a risk worth taking? I mean, I wasn't at the table when the decision was made, but of, but of course you need to take into account these, uh, at, at for now, well-known risks uh, when you're making decisions with respect to vaccination policy. But that's just one one small part that you need to take into account. There are a lot of other things that, that, that you could take into account, uh, right? I don't know if you have observed this in Denmark as well, but certainly in the United Kingdom and definitely in America, this has become a very, very controversial topic. And there are lots of people, many millions of people, I think, who are really, really worried about it and feel that there is some sort of cover-up going on. And in fact, the, the, the risks of these vaccinations are, are greater than we're being told about. What's your assessment of that? Do you think that we are getting good information out of governments and out of big pharma companies? Or do you think there is an atmosphere of sort of cloak and dagger about it? We've, we've done a massive amount of research uh, from uh, a lot of different uh, reputable sources. Uh, this data that we work on here in Denmark, we can't really have any cloak and dagger sitting about them because they are more or less publicly available to all researchers. And so it would be impossible for all researchers all over uh, to be in on some kind of conspiracy, right? Uh, so it's impossible to hide anything. And uh, on the contrary, we, we've tried to, to study it as extensively as possible and to be as transparent as, as possible about it. I mean, we published these results on myocarditis. We published results for the uh, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine on uh, the thromboembolic and thrombocytopenic events. So we certainly are not trying to hide any uh, uh, adverse events. We, we, we're presenting what we're finding fully transparently. Earlier, we spoke to um, a, a, a Danish a professor called Christine Stabel-Ben, um, and her she looked at all-cause mortality, and she did find a uh, correlation between the mRNA vaccines and that. Do you think that that finding stands, or should we take that seriously? Yeah, I mean, I... I, I remember that it was a reanalysis of clinical trial data, and it was the numbers were very small, and it again it's it's not really worth a lot in in in, in sort of the hierarchy of evidence. I mean, science is sort of um, it's made up of of a lot of, of of many different studies. Rarely one study can stand alone, and science is incremental. And there is really, there's really nothing to suggest that, 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 that mRNA vaccines have a negative uh, measurable, observable uh, influence on, on mortality in, in, in general. On the contrary, I mean, the vaccines have prevented many, 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 many deaths, right? Let me ask you a, a final question, Professor, which is that had we known what we know now about the different vaccines, and obviously people were making decisions fast during the COVID pandemic. 
Would you have recommended the AstraZeneca or non-mRNA vaccines over either Pfizer or Moderna? Is that now, with the benefit of hindsight, is that now what we should have done? No, I think it, it's turned out uh, fine as, as, as we've done it. I mean, in, in the Nordic countries, we, we stopped the use of uh, AstraZeneca because we observed this uh, TTS phenomenon, which carries a high uh, morbidity, high mortality, which we deemed was unacceptable to, to offer a vaccine, which, although it was rare, could essentially kill people. Um, so the mRNA vaccines have worked well for us. And again, it's a moving target. Um, are we talking about introducing vaccines in a completely unvaccinated population with the, with the early uh, strains of SARS-CoV-2? Or are we talking about a highly vaccinated population and uh, who, who, are, who, are, who, who should we give the fourth, fourth dose to? In, in a situation where we have Omicron and many people have already been in, infected once, we have hybrid immunity, uh, vaccine immunity, etc. Anders Veed, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, sure. That was Anders Veem from the Danish health agency responsible for vaccines. Next up, we are joined by Dr. Tracy Ho who is a prominent critic of lockdowns, a prominent critic of vaccine mandates, and who is a consultant epidemiologist for the Florida Department of Health. Yes, the same people who put out the study we are here to discuss. Welcome, Tracy. Hello. So let's just dive straight into this study, if we could. So you, you've got an interesting perspective because you've actually you've worked with the Florida Department of Health. Presumably you knew about this study as it was being put together. Tell us about how it came about. Yeah, so I mean, I guess I'll say that I was just aware that that it was being done, and I um, was was you know aware of the results before they came out, but I was not involved in the design of the study or the analysis that was done. Um, but I've I've worked with the epi, epi team, uh, bef you know, quite a bit with the Florida Department of Health and and Joe and Joe's a good friend of mine. This is Joe Lopardo, the Surgeon General. That's right, Joe, Joe Lopardo. Yeah, exactly. So um, so I, I I you know have have an inside track in terms of that, but not in terms of who exactly the the authors are or you know how how exactly the study came about. I guess that's got to be the first question. Who are the authors. I mean, you say you don't know exactly. Do we know any of them? It's a it's a strange a strange I mean, paper to put out no, without I mean, an author. I, I I will just say that that I haven't been told and um I I didn't ask. So you know I I'm I'm sorry to disappoint the listeners that I won't won't be able to give more information in terms of that. Give us your overall assessment of the findings. Then what what do you take away from this study in terms of information that could be useful to us? Yeah. So, um, so first of all, it's I, I need to back up and discuss the study design a little bit because it's really um, sort of an unconventional type of study. So what they did was they looked at uh, death certificates of people 18 and older in Florida um, during the time of the study period. So which was from the start of the vaccine uh, rollout until I believe it was June of 2022, they wanted to make sure that they had enough time so that they had all of the death certificates that were available. Um, uh, and so they weren't uh, not including people who had actually died. And so what they did was they looked at um, whether or not there was an increased risk of dying um, within the first 28 days of receiving the vaccination. So it could have been mRNA, it could have been other vaccine, um, or the subsequent 21, or sorry, the subsequent five to, to 25 weeks. Um, and so they, they looked to see if there was an increased risk of death proximal to getting the vaccine. Um, and they, they um, stratified that by sex, so male, female, um, by age group, and um, whether or not the person had received an mRNA um, vaccine or a, a non-mRNA vaccine. Um, and and then they 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 identified the the biggest signal that they identified, um, which was announced to the public, was that there was an 84% increased risk of dying in that 
uh, of cardiovascular death among the 18 to 39-year-old males in that first period of 28 days compared to the rest of the follow-up period for the ones that had, uh, had received the mRNA vaccines, but not for the adenovirus vector vaccines. And do you trust that finding? I mean, it's it's one finding, it's one study um, that I will say that uh, that the good thing about this study is it eliminates the bias of whether or not the vaccinated, like it doesn't look at vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And a problem before in comparing um, and in looking at the risks of the vaccines is a lot of times vaccinated people are, are less healthy than the unvaccinated, um, especially in that age group. And so that that eliminated that confounder of the difference between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated in terms of their. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Health. Um, so, so the important confounders in something like this would be, was there something else after, immediately after the vaccine that put these people at risk? Um, compared to a later period, up to 25 weeks later, um, or was it just a statistical anomaly? Um, you know, was there a time period in that up to 25 weeks later where there was a lower risk of cardiac death for whatever reason in just that age group? But you know, it 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 it's interesting that it would only affect the 18 to 39 year old males and not the other um, demographics, and and so I. I don't think it should be dismissed. We've just um, got off the line with Anders Ried, who is an epidemiologist from your home nation of Denmark. Um, he's actually a, one of the senior epidemiologists at the Staten Serum Institute. And he was telling us that his study, which covers all of the Nordic countries and involves 23 million people, um, again, correlated, it confirmed this idea of myocarditis as a, 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 a sim. A, side effect and a symptom of these vaccines, but he wasn't seeing deaths. Um, and that's a huge sample size. You know, how are we to make sense of these these competing findings? So that that's a really good question. And I will say that I, I think you're talking about the study that was in JAMA cardiology um, and of the Nordic countries. And that that was actually an excellent study because it, it sort of disproved the notion that people have that myocarditis 
is necessarily more common after COVID than after the vaccine. Because if you looked at the Pfizer-Moderna combination, especially when they're given in close proximity, it was up to myocarditis after the vaccine was up to 28 times higher than after COVID in that younger uh, male age group. So that, that's an important finding in that. But you're right, they didn't have deaths in that study. Um, not, not that I can recall, and I guess you just interviewed him. But I will say that in, in the New England Journal of Medicine from um, Israel, there was a death reported um, related to myocarditis in a young male. Um, and there have been some deaths reported um, due to myocarditis in the peer-reviewed literature, although to my knowledge so far they are less than 10. Which would make, potentially, makes this study somewhat of an outlier. Um, I mean, one of the criti criticisms, I'd quite like to go through some of the attacks on it with you, if that's okay. I know it's not your study, you're not an author of it, but you know, you're as well placed as anyone to, to discuss it with us. The sample size is the first thing people talk about, that if you, if you look under the hood, and we can put the, the table up, I think, it's only 20 individuals that we're talking about in this age cohort. Um, and you know, this, this big number of 84% that is flying around the internet, around the whole world, is based on this very small number of people. So if X number of those 20 um, were actually dying of something else, the whole statistic starts to um, fall over. Is that a fair criticism, do you think? Yeah, it's really important for people to consider that context, that this number of deaths is very small. And and I agree that if it were just a couple fewer, that the, you know it wouldn't have been statistically significant. Um, and and so and it's also you know we're not if if we're seeing deaths following the vaccine in this age group, it's not in high numbers. And so I think that's also important to state. Um, and I will say that of course, you know we we're talking about myocarditis now. It could be possible that there's another cause of cardiac death related to the vaccine, um, but you know we haven't we haven't been seeing that. But I don't know if we're not detecting rare arrhythmias um, or or other potential causes. But again, I that it's a very important criticism that if it is happening, it's obviously happening in very small numbers. I'm going to go through a couple of other of these critiques with you and see what you make of them. Some other people on social media have been saying that the method of defining the deaths is a little bit suspect. Um, they use a particular code, it's called NI3152, um, about identifying the underlying cause of death. And the authors of the study themselves say, thus, the underlying cause of death may not be cardiac related. Um, is that a, a reasonable concern? Is that a potential source for error when we're looking at such small numbers? I mean, that's definitely a potential cause for concern. Of course, that would have affected all the groups, but you're basically relying on someone, you know, a physician who's filling out the death certificate. You're relying on the person who's filling out the death certificate to, to put the accurate cause of death. And you might, you know, that might not always be 100% clear. Um, so, I mean, yeah, again, it's, it's legitimate, um, but it would, it would have presumably affected all the groups. Okay, next one I'm going to throw at you. Um, there's someone on social media called Deepti Gurdasani, who has become a bit of a kind of celebrity here in the UK. She is uh, passionately in favour of lockdowns and vaccines and various measures against COVID. And she was first up with a uh, kind of takedown of this study. Her critique is that people can't die twice. So why have authors included people who've died in the first 28 days post-vax in the denominator for the second period? So she, she thinks there's a kind of accounting problem going on here where um, it, it pretends to compare the same group of people in the first time period and the second time period, but in fact, in the second time period, the first lot are dead. My understanding of this method is you are once the person dies, you you censor them, so they're included in the entire follow-up. And so basically, you're looking at the total number of deaths over the amount of time in the first time period versus the total number of deaths over the amount of time uh, for the entire population. No one is censored in the second time period. Um, and so, uh, you know, I I I think that as far as I can tell that this was done um, correctly in terms of the self-control case series method. So let's zoom out a little bit, if we could, 
What is your overall assessment? I mean, you're someone who has been critical. You know, you, you were consulting for the Florida uh, Department of Health, uh, which has been famously more uh, sort of libertarian in its approach to COVID. You've been critical of over-the-top lockdowns and some school closures and things like that. It's notable that you're living in California, where they are still apparently quite enthusiastic about those measures. What's your overall assessment? Is the mRNA vaccine dangerous? Is it just an, a, a vaccine that has some side effects that we should sort of take seriously but not get overly worried about? Where are we? Yeah, so I I think, you know, we, we needed to be better at individualizing our recommendations uh, for the mRNA vaccines because um, especially in older people, we've seen that they've been very life-saving um, vaccines. Um, and for younger people, I will say that we very early on had this signal of myocarditis, especially in young males, especially after the second dose of the vaccine. And so my my take has been, and I've published a peer-reviewed paper on this and was one of the, I think we were, in, in the U.S., we were the, the first group to really, um, pub, well, we're the first in the world to publish a risk-benefit analysis, but one of the first to come out with data from the VAERS database um, that this is a signal that in adolescents and young males that should be taken very seriously and that we should have tried to minimize the risk of the myocarditis and the cardiovascular effects from very early on. And there was a question, uh, there's always been a question of, you know, if, if a healthy person has already been infected, what is the additional benefit of adding a vaccine to that and does it outweigh the risks? And um, in, in healthy children, you know, uh, especially with Omicron, even if they have been infected, do the benefits outweigh the risks? Um, now the MISC, which was a very um, problematic complication of COVID, has basically disappeared in young children. I think the risk-benefit analysis ratio, you know, has gotten more more complicated, and it's sort of uh, also that you know in in 86% or higher of children, I guess, right now in the U.S. have already been infected. And so, you know, we should consider that in our vaccine recommendations. Like, we need to be better at doing a risk-benefit calculation. So what do you think should be policy now, then? I mean, let's, let me ask you this first. At this point in the... Uh, are we still in the pandemic? I don't know. But at this point in the <laughs> lifetime of the COVID story, where almost everyone has had it and we're on to, you know, version five or 10 or whatever we're on. Is there any point vaccinating anyone under 50? Or would you support the Danish government's idea that we should at least stop boostering people in that younger age group? Yeah, so I I actually I agree with Denmark's decision to not that, that when they came out and said that we should not be vaccinating children unless they're high risk anymore. And that's what, that was especially in light of the Omicron variant because there was such high population immunity. So I think that's very fair at this at this point that unless a child is felt to be high risk, that it's not you know necessary uh, you know to 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 vaccinate them. And I know that they're not even making it a choice um, for parents. Um, and you know what about I, young I, adults? And so yeah, I I agree with. Um, I agree with the, the Danish government about the booster decision, um, and I've I've actually uh, that we shouldn't be um, giving the booster to people. And I, you know, we could we could debate about the cutoff, but if you're healthy uh, and you're not high risk under 50, I think that that is a fair cutoff. I don't think that we have the exact numbers to know what the cutoff should be. I guess so. That puts you in a sort of center ground position, I guess, that you, you think it should be individual choices, we should be very clear about the risk reward, and people should make their own decisions. Yeah, yeah. And I think like the most important is that in the US, there is there are still uh, mandates at universities and colleges for young people to get the booster and even the bivalent booster. And I just think that's, that's so problematic. Like it, it puts, you know, young, healthy people, many, many young, healthy people at unnecessary risk of, you know, not just myocarditis, which is the most serious complication we know of, but, you know, other rare side effects. 
um, for a very, very small benefit, really, if any, if they are healthy and already have been infected. Where has it left you? I mean, I gotta, I'm gonna try and press you a little bit here. I mean, where, where has it left you? Are you with the kind of signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration who feel like, you know, we, we should have allowed the disease to spread basically among younger generations and been much more relaxed about that and, and focused protection on vulnerable and older groups? Or do you think it was right to have this universal vaccination strategy? Um, so I, I think I, I take a little bit of a middle ground because I was very um, pro school reopening, early school reopening, because I thought we saw early on that children were very, were mildly affected, largely mildly affected, and also that children were getting COVID outside of school more than inside of school. And so I, I, I thought we also saw early on that opening schools did not increase community spread, whereas opening college campuses really did seem to. I was kind of like the Great Barrington, but for schools, uh, for, for K through 12. Like I really thought that those should have been opened early, like in Scandinavia, or maybe like in Sweden, not even closed for the primary schools. I do actually think in retrospect, they ended up doing that correctly. Should we have vaccinated anyone under 40? Um, I think that there are people who are particularly high risk under 40, who I was very happy had the had the option to be vaccinated. Um, and let's say about how about healthy under 40 year old? <laughs> so that's that that's a good question. And I like I said, I don't think I don't know that we we have the data to 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 answer that question with certainty. But I've I've kind of always felt that healthy children under 18, I've kind of always taken the stance, actually, that we did not know if the risks outweighed the benefits from early on. Um, and so I kind of feel like we we actually still don't know, though, you know, I think that it's it's fair to say maybe one dose outweighed the benefits or outweighed the, the risks of COVID. But, um, you know, I'll tell you personally, I did not vaccinate my children because they're healthy. And um, I know that's just that's just an anecdote, but that's a reflection of how I felt that in medicine, you know, we, we do believe in first do no harm. And so if if you really don't know for certain the risks um, and the tr and the trials in children were very small, it's really hard to justify a medical intervention when you don't have adequate information about the risks. Let me try and turn this round uh, for a second, because we've been emphasizing some of the kind of over-enthusiasm, maybe zealous nature of the vaccination campaign and a lot of those lockdowns and school closures. And I think most right-thinking, ordinary people now think mistakes were made. I don't think that's even controversial to say. And you've been detailing how you wish there had been a bit more of a scientific calm individualistic approach to some of these policies. On the other side, there are many, many people, possibly many millions of people, who believe that all of the excess death data we are seeing in Europe and in America and elsewhere still is explained by these vaccinations, um, that there is a massive um, conspiracy and cover-up uh, involving governments and big pharma to hide these injuries. Um, and that really something very, very sinister has happened that's caused many, many people to die. What's your view of, what would you say to those people? So I, I, I will actually say that I, I've been looking to Sweden again, the great control group, um, to figure out sort of what's been going on with the excess deaths. And um, uh, up until recently, they really didn't have um, excess deaths following uh, the MR, uh, following the vaccination campaign. And in my mind, that speaks very strongly to the excess deaths being seen in in um, Europe and and the U.S. and you know wealthy nations being related to the harms of the lockdowns predominantly rather than the vaccines. Now. I, I'm not saying that there are, there are no deaths being caused by the vaccines. That's really difficult to to rule out. You know, I mean, like I've I've said, we've seen in the peer-reviewed literature there have been deaths that have been related to the vaccines. Um, 
I, I will say that there was a signal that was put out by the FDA where they found an increased risk of uh, myocardial infarction following the, M uh, the, the mRNA vaccines um, in people over 65 from the Medicare database, and they never followed up on that. Um, I, I thought that that was problematic. I, I do think that it's been a problem that we've had, you know, difficulty being being able to trust that we're getting all of the information about the safety of the vaccines. But do you think those vaccines are killing many, many, many thousands of people? I don't think so. And like I said, I've, I'm basing that actually on what I've been seeing in Sweden. Now they're only one country, but I think, you know, they have over 75% vaccination rate. Um, and so why, if we, if there were a big signal, we would be seeing it there, but we're not seeing it. Um, and so I do think that people are attributing what I think are the, you know, the excess deaths are more likely due to something having to do with lockdowns. And that's why Sweden is so interesting because there really was no lockdown. Um, and so I, I, I do think that it's that we shouldn't be jumping to the conclusion that this is due to vaccines. You mentioned there that it's hard to trust the information we get. And I think that is 100% true. Um, sometimes it's been the authorities that have been overly zealous or they've been covering things up or they haven't been uh, as keen to investigate both sides as we would have liked. But in other instances, and maybe the most recent report coming out of the Florida Surgeon General's office this week is one of them, the other side isn't helping either. Because to put out a report like this without any names, without any details, such that a consultant epidemiologist from the Florida State Health Department doesn't even know who the authors are, that's not going to help. I mean, maybe you could have a word with uh, the Surgeon General and say, you know, do better because it's going to increase conspiracy, not decrease it, if he doesn't, you know, do this this properly. Yeah, I mean, I I will just say I I have I have nothing bad to say about Joe at all, and and I I think that you know he that it's it's a very important point that it would be nice to have authors listed on it. And I think it would be, it, you know, that's kind of standard that if, if you have questions that there's someone listed that you can ask about the methods or ask about the data. And I, so I completely agree with you there. Um, and so, but you're right that it's, it's, this, it's felt like the discussion about vaccines has been like, you know, it's been like a war, uh, you know, and, and people are automatically taking sides. And that's exactly what we saw with this study was that I kind of like knew <laughs> what people were going to say already, whether or not, whether they liked it or disliked it, whether or not they actually, you know, really looked at the study or understood the method. So that's been really interesting. Um, but I'll also say on the side of you know, the sort of the CDC and, and the pro pro vaccination, like uh, the infant toddler vaccine data. I mean, it was, you know, it's, it was for Pfizer it was not even statistically significant against infection. Um, and they still, you know, it was still approved by the FDA and CDC and then, you know, our own CDC to have them, you know, uh, approve and not only approve, but CDC recommends, you know, the boosters for people down to the age of 12 with no caveats at all. Like, I, I know that I know that they're not doing a risk benefit analysis there. I just know they're not because we did it in college age students and it wasn't indicated by far. So I, I, I do feel like on both sides, it's, it's, you know, we, we, we need to have more people meeting in the middle. <laughs> So you think organizations like the CDC have been kind of hijacked or, or blinded by the politics of this question and are actually no longer trustworthy scientific bodies? I mean, I, I don't know exactly why they're putting out unscientific recommendations for, for children to be boosted and approving vaccines on such a low threshold when we don't know, you know, the for, for the infants and toddlers, particularly even for the five to 11 year olds. So yes, I don't feel like they're doing adequate science or data collection when it, um, when it comes to their recommendations and it puts physicians in a very difficult position about knowing whether or not they should be recommending, you know, how many doses and for whom. So 
I, 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 I do think that, that Denmark and Scandinavia and Norway and Sweden, they've been doing a much better job at giving transparent um, evidence-based information to the public. And they know that trust is a two-way street, like trust is earned by the public. You know, and so they they trust the public to get vaccinated on their recommendations, and the public trusts them to give accurate information. Tracy, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today. It feels like we're doing another kind of advert for the Nordic group of nations. <laughs> well, they deserve it. <laughs> Thanks thank for your you time. So much for having me on. Thank you to Tracy and also to Anders Vid from the Danish Department of Health. I don't know what you made of that. Obviously, they have slightly differing views, but overlapping views, and that came actually to some quite similar conclusions, even though one appeared to be more establishment, working for the government, and the other, well, is more controversial, having been such a critic of lockdowns, a critic of school closures. This is my takeaway from those discussions, and you're free, of course, to come to your own conclusions and let us know what they are in the comments. To me, it seems like the following things can all be true. Number one, vaccines became something like a religion to the establishment during the COVID era. They were pushed through overly forcefully. That process trampled on people's individual rights and normal scientific protocols, normal risk reward measurements were ignored in the process. Two, COVID vaccines have real side effects, most notably myocarditis, and that is most visible in younger men. And that fairly makes the risk reward for that kind of vaccination for that group a questionable proposition. Quite possibly for them and for younger people in general, those vaccines are not worth it. It needs study, it needs taking seriously, and we should have a calm and measured approach to that. However, I have not seen convincing evidence that many thousands or millions of people are dying of vaccines or that the excess deaths still being experienced in Europe are primarily down to vaccine side effects. And nor have I seen evidence of a bad faith global conspiracy of big pharma, national governments, the World Health Organization, and name any others, to knowingly harm people. I don't believe that's actually what happened either. As always, these conclusions are subject to challenge. Good science always should be. For now, we're going to try to stay skeptical, stay aware of our own biases, and carry on doing our best to get close to the truth. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you found it helpful. This was Unheard. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs>